And what a lovely hymn, isn't it? The American writer Mark Twain, many years ago, was asked what he thinks of the Scripture, the Bible. And he says this, quote, he said, Most people are bothered by those passages of Scriptures which they cannot understand. He said, but as for me, I have always noticed that the passages of Scripture which trouble me most are those which I do understand. I don't know about you, whether you are troubled by Scripture that you don't understand, or are you more troubled, as Mark Twain did, by those passages of the Scripture that he do understand. And today, as we come to this text that is in front of us in Ephesians chapter 4, particularly from verses 25 to 32, that one actually needs no explanation because it is just so clear-cut, seven instructions from the Lord how we should live together as a community. Clear-cut, need no explanation. As we have already mentioned, chapter 4 to 6 is very practical. Paul often used the first part of the letter to talk about doctrine. And so chapter 1 to 3 is about doctrine. Chapter 4 to 6 is about duty. Chapter 1 to 3 is about privileges that we are saved, we have been chosen, we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And then now chapter 4 to 6 is our responsibilities. Chapter 1 to 3 talk about belief. And chapter 4 to 6 now talks about behavior. And so we come down to this second part of the uh, letter of Ephesians where it is very practical. It is so easy to understand that it actually needs very little explanation. And chapter 4 onwards, as Pastor Caroline last week has already mentioned about unity in Christ. Because That's, yes, that's good. Chapter one, uh, chapter 1 to 3, uh, chap- rather, uh, chapter 1 to 3 has been talking about God has torn down this wall, this barrier. Now the Jews and Gentiles, they are warned. Now God has created a third race, a third race, Christians. And as such, God wants the church to manifest His wisdom now to the world. So this church is supposed to represent God in the sense of, of his, his goal, His ideal, that this church is supposed to shine for Him. And so chapter 4 onwards, he begins by saying, we are one in Christ, there's unity. So we move now from chapter 4, 1 to 6, is talking about the theological aspect of unity. And now today is the text from verse 17 onwards, it's talking about the ethical aspect of unity in a very practical way how can we maintain unity in the church and so chapter 4 1 verses 1 to 16 paul begin by talking about we are one in christ we are one in christ he, he says here there's one body one spirit just as you were caught one hope one lord one faith one baptism one god and father of all and who is over all and 
through all and in all. The great unity we have in Christ. And then he said, the other, the other theological aspect of, of unity is not recognizing that we are one in Christ, but recognizing that there's diversity. That we are different. Though we are one, but we are different. Because God gives each one of us different personality. He created us different. And then he talked about recognizing ministry. That because that you are different and therefore you have different gifts that you can use to build out the body of Christ. No one has one gift or no one has all gifts. Everybody has a gift that we can use to serve the Lord. And then not just only unity, diversity, uh, ministry. And lastly, he said recognizing that your pathway is to move towards maturity. So that you can grow up in all, that you are able to speak the truth in love. And then now, from verses 17 onwards... Paul is going to zoom in on this ethical aspect of unity. Yeah, but in concrete terms, what are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to behave in a sense? Francis Schaeffer, a great uh, uh, author who founded Labrie Ministry, he said once, he said, our relationship with each other is the criterion the world uses to judge whether our message is truthful. Christian community is the final apologetic. That means how we live together speaks louder than anything else, than what we profess. And so today, the outline is very simple. If you want to follow, the outline is just like that. Verses 17 to 19, Paul is going to help the Gentiles to revisit. This is the old you. This is what you were. And then verses 20 to 24, there is a change, the change that's happening. And then after that, he said, this is the new you. This is what you ought to, to behave. This is, ought, this is how you ought to live now that you are a believer. Now that you have been chosen, you've given all the spiritual blessing in Christ, you've been redeemed. This is then now, put on the old cloth. Put off the old clothes, put on the new one. This is the real you. So the old you, the change, and then the new you. So this is the outline that I will plow through uh, for the next 30 minutes, and I will read the scripture text according to that particular heading. So the first one is the old. Now Paul is going to begin to tell these Gentiles believers and reminding them again, this were who you were. And for us, we've been a Christian for a long time. Maybe we need to revisit that and say, well, God has redeemed us from that. This is, this, this is who we were in the past. And here, let me read the text to you first. The old you. So I tell you, Paul says, and I insist on it in the Lord. He's using his authority as an apostle. I'm insisting on you in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. Like what you were. How? In the futility of their thinking... They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity and they are full of greed. So this is Paul's analysis of what they were 
before that. And it is noteworthy at this point that it is, what is noteworthy is Paul's emphasis on the intellectual faculty, intellectual factor in everybody's way of life. And while he described pagans, he draws attention to their futility of their minds. He said, you must not only in the futility of their thinking, they are darkened in their understanding, and they are separated from life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. So if you want to work backwards, Paul said the source of the problem is what? Is the hardening of their hearts. The logical connection there, he seems to be depicting the terrible downward path of evil which begins with an obstinate Rejection of God's known truth. Hardening of their hearts. First comes their hardness of heart and then leads to their ignorance and then being darkened in their understanding and then next and consequently they are alienated from the life of God since he turns away from them until finally they have become callous and have given themselves up to licentiousness, greedy to practice every kind of of uncleanness. It has to deal with starting point is our mind, isn't it? Hardening. So our so that can deduce one very practical thing is that Christianity is actually religion of belief. It is not superstition, it's not based on superstition, it is not based on emotions, it derived from God's revelation of his word to us. That his word is the one that directs us. Our belief system, what we believe then, comes derived from God's revealed word. There's an intellectual component to that aspect of teaching, of learning, understanding our belief system that leads to behavior. We should not just correct behavior. Our behavior often comes from beliefs. And it is the belief system that needs to be corrected that then flow out from that their behavior. So the hardness of heart leads first to darkness of mind and then to deadness of the soul until the judgment of God and finally to recklessness of life, having lost all sensitivity, people lost all self-control. So that is the old you. Paul is saying, this is your old you. And then he moves now to what happened. There's a change that happened. You know, from verses 20 to 24, Paul begins to tell us what happened? There is a change. He says this, That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ. You see the intellectual component again there? Cognitive part of it? That when you heard about Christ and you were taught in Him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, again, the intellectual component of it, in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God, in true righteousness and holiness. Paul said, you, you have heard about Christ, you were taught in Him in accordance with the truth, the revelation of God's Word, the truth of the Gospel of Jesus Christ 
putting on the face of God, coming to us, walk on earth for 30 years, die on the cross, resurrected from the dead, appeared to the disciples, ascended to heaven, seated at the right hand of God. This is a fundamental, true and historical truth of the gospel. So you were taught in him accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. And therefore you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self and to made, to be made new in the attitude in your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in the true righteousness and holiness. The emphasis on intellectual faculty continues when Paul says believers had learned Christ, heard about Him, been taught in Him, all according to the truth which is in Jesus. So our gospel is grounded in truth, is grounded in factual belief system that will then move us down towards our behavior. It's not based on superstition. It is not just based on some of your own intellectual revelation that you receive, but is revealed in the person of Jesus Christ and come down in the Holy Word of God to each one of us. And then now, that is where I want to concentrate on, the uh, ethical aspect of unity. Paul then went on to say, now that you know this is who you were, and then you heard about Christ, there's a transformation that takes place, the Holy Spirit begins to live in you, you begin to run your Christian life. This then, as a church, we ought to live so that the church can be united as one. So there are six or seven uh, strong very direct instruction, as I said, it is those words that is so easy to understand that need actually very little explanation. So what I want to do is I want to read to you first and then I'll unpack the six and just fill in for you because I don't want to break the flow of the text of this particular instruction from Paul. So let me read to you first. He said, Therefore, after arguing that this is all you, this is what taken place, therefore each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. For we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their deeds that it may benefit those who listened. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind 
be compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as Christ. Just as in Christ, God forgave you. Before I give you the six straightforward, obvious instruction from Paul, I want to emphasize that if you just read this text in isolation from the continuation of the text, then it becomes naturally moving towards a work theology, work-based salvation. Christianity is not just about, we are saved not by works, but we are saved for works. There's a great difference. We can't be saved by works. As Paul has already argued right from the start, we are saved by grace. But we are saved for works. So if you're going to leave this text in isolation, it seems to tell us Christian that it is all about do, 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 do. It is not just that. It is, to me, it's flow, 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 flow. Not do, 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 do. It flows. It flows then because you have a relationship with God, because you love Jesus, you know that God redeemed you, God saved you. Then the change just will flow out from you. And so if we just concentrate on this, it will just do, 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 do. No, you can't be... That way, it should be flowing out from our heart because that we have been saved, because we have been redeemed, because we love Jesus, and therefore good works then flow out from that gratitude and adoration of who, what Jesus has done for us. So with that uh, understanding, I, I now give you this simple, six, straightforward text that Paul tells us to do. He says, speak truthfully. Basically, don't tell lies, but rather tell the truth. It says here in verse 25, Therefore, each one of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. You know, it's very hard to speak truth nowadays because we are so used to believing in lies. George Orwell used to say that uh, uh, lies are so well embedded uh, that we, unless you really love truth, you will not be able to recognize it. And so uh, he said, speak truthfully. Don't tell lies, but rather tell the truth. As someone said, truth is stranger than fiction. And sometimes it's hard to speak truth because the, it hurts. It hurts. Followers of Christ should be known in their community as honest, reliable people whose word can be trusted. And the reason given by Paul is not only that the other person is our neighbor, as he says here, but also because we are members and all members of one body. For fellowship, to, for fellowship is built on trust, and trust is built on truth. So falsehood undermines fellowships, while truth always strengthens it. Always strengthens it. Someone say it is better to speak the truth that hurts and then heals than falsehood that comforts and then kills. Maybe hard, difficult, but let's try our best to put on, put away falsehood and speak truthfully. Secondly, he said, do not sin in anger. Interesting, isn't it? 
Do not sin in anger. Basically, said, don't lose your temper, but rather ensure that your anger is righteous. That sentence alone, in your anger, do not sin, it seems to imply that there is an anger, a type of anger that you don't sin. You can be angry, but you are actually not sinning. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Anger is a condition in which the tongue works faster than the mind. And anger doesn't solve anything. It builds nothing. But it will destroy everything. Proverbs 29 verse 11 says, A fool gives full vent to his anger, but a wise man keeps himself under control. So if, if Paul says, in your anger do not sin, he's saying that anger is actually only an emotion. Good or bad, depending on the motive and depending on the purpose. Because as we know, this phrase has been popularized, there is such a thing called righteous anger. But I do think that even righteous anger that is uncontrolled is also led to sin. So we cannot always justify that righteous anger means to say that it gives you permission to be really angry. Righteous anger uncontrolled, I think, also can lead to sin. Righteous anger is anger that, for example, Jesus had. Jesus may be angry, but he's always angry about the fact that God has been maligned or when others are mistreated. But he was never, never selfishly angry at what was done against him. Never. And that is the measure of righteous anger. It is the anger of the Lord's people who hate evil. It is the anger that abhors injustice and ungodliness in every sort. I like to believe that people who have a great sense of justice, fighting for justice, they have in some sense a strong emotions of anger. That will spur them on to correct and fight for justice in a sense. And therefore, they have a sense of angry that it is not right. And therefore, it will propel them to do something. I can't imagine people who are very laid back will fight for justice in a sense. You need to have a sense of anger that in the sense that it is wrong. It is a sense that I need to get it right. Aristotle say anybody can become angry. That is easy. But to be angry with the right person to the right degree, at the right time, for the right purpose, and in the right way, that is not easy. Anger that is sin is anger that is self-defensive, self-serving, that is resentful of what is done against oneself. As I say, even righteous anger can easily turn to bitterness, resentment, and self-righteousness. And consequently, Paul goes on to say, Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Righteous anger is, is good, is necessary. St. John Chrysostom says this, He who is not angry, whereas he has caused to be, sins. For unreasonable patience is the hotbed of vices. It fosters negligence and it incites not only the wicked but the good to do wrong. And if you look at your Bible, if you look at your Bible that says, In your anger do not sin, you have a footnote there. Paul is actually quoting Psalm chapter 4, verse 4. And if you read Psalms 4, you have a better context of, of what 
the context of anger is about. In Psalm chapter 4, verse 4, it says, Be angry and do not sin. When you are on your beds, search your hearts and be silent. Paul recognizes that unrestrained anger is the gateway to much sin. If unchecked, anger can lead to violence, retribution, revenge, and even murder. We see that many times in marriages that broke down. And that is why Paul wants us to be on guard and gives us parameters lest our anger breaks out and lead us into sin. And therefore Paul said, Wow, you can angry, but do not let the sun go down. He warned us not to allow our anger to slip out of our control. Do not allow our anger to burn for more than a day. Why? Because then you will give the devil an opportunity. They say anger is only one letter short of danger. And therefore, in Psalm chapter 4, where he quoted that phrase, if you look in verse 4 and 5, he said, Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. Put your trust in the Lord. No matter what you're angry about, sometimes you just say, Lord, you, you take charge. You take charge of it. You take charge of it. So second thing that Paul gives to us in a community is to be, to be do not sin in anger. Do not sin in anger. And then he moves on that says, share with those in need. Share with those in need. And in verse 28, he says, anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands. That they, what's the whole purpose of that? That they may have something to share with those in need. So Paul's instruction was don't steal, but rather work so that you can give. Not just so that you can work and indulge. You can work and you can give, you can share. It is not enough that the thief stops stealing. Let him start working, doing honest work with his hands, earning his own living. Then he will be able not only to support himself and the family, but also to give to those in need. That, this again demonstrates what it looks like to put off the old self and instead put on the new self. Christians are called to engage in enterprise, work, and labor. We must be a people characterized by our honesty. This means our money must derive from honest work. Moreover, believers have an utterly different perspective on work. Money, possessions, and everything. Christian has a new perspective to it about work, money, and all that. The motivation here for the believers Labor is altogether different than those who are in the world. We work and we labor that we might love, assist, and aid our brothers and sisters who are in need. And Paul says that that is the ultimate goal of your work. It's not just only to support, but also that you are in a position to help those who are in need. The believer works for the good of others. The believer labors that he might be a blessing. And the fourth one that Paul gives to us 
about living in a very ethical aspect of unity is build others up with your speech. Don't use your mouth for evil, but rather for good. Verse 29 says, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listened. Someone said that the true test of my faith is not my ability to express my beliefs, but rather my ability to control my tongue. The true test of your faith is not for you to be able to recite the Apostle Creed. The true test of your faith is whether you have the ability to control your tongue. Sidlow Baxter, a reformed author, said the proof that God's Spirit is in your life is not that you speak in an unknown tongue, but you control the tongue you do know. The proof that God's Spirit is living in you is not that you speak in an unknown tongue, but you control the tongue that you do know. Words are powerful. Words can build, words can destroy. Someone say, I am more deadly than the screaming shell from the Hartwitzer. I win without killing. I tear down homes. I break hearts. I wreck lives. I travel on the wings of the wind. No innocence is strong enough to intimidate me. No purity pure enough to dawn me. I have no regard for truth. I have no respect for justice. I have no mercy for the defenseless. My victims are as numerous as the sands of the sea and often as innocent. I never forget and I seldom forgive. And my name is Gossip. Words can destroy, gossip can destroy people's lives, people's reputation. There is a way of speaking that does great harm. Gossip, slander, unloving and unhelpful criticism. Frivolous conversation do great harm. Words are not merely words. Words have power to destroy reputation. It has power to discourage. It has the power to break hearts of our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And Paul here say, hey guys, for us to live together, please don't let unwholesome talk come out from your mouth. We have to speak to each other in ways which encourages, build up, that display the grace and mercy of Christ Jesus. Someone says, soft words sung in a lullaby will put a baby to sleep. Excited words will stir a mob to violence. Eloquent words will send armies marching into the face of death. Encouraging words will fan to flame the genius of a Rembrandt or a Lincoln. Powerful words will mold the public mind 
as the sculptor molds his clay. Words spoken or written are a dynamic force. Words are swords we use in our battle for success and happiness. How others react to us depends in a large measure upon the words we speak to them. Life, listen to this, life is a great whispering gallery that sends back echoes of the words we send out. Our words live beyond us. They go marching through the years in the lives of all those with whom we come in contact. Our words live beyond us. They go marching through the years in the lives of all those with whom we come in contact. And so here Paul says, Wow, do not let unwholesome talk come out of your mouth as a new community, as believers, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Do you have to put out with people talking? Do you have to? That is not benefiting? Have you been in a conversation where there are 20 people or 10 people and then one or two just dominate the entire conversation? Paul said, well, speak words that benefit each one of us. Encourage, build up, speak the truth and fellowship in a godly manner. And then Paul said, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. It's very strange, many commentators, very strange that Paul suddenly slot in this part of it. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. He said, uh, of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. And John Stott has a very helpful way in explaining this. John Stott say, uh, what grieves the Holy Spirit? He says, since he is the Holy Spirit, sometimes we forget the fact that he's the Holy Spirit. We think that he's a jolly spirit. Uh, John Stock says, since he is the Holy Spirit, he is always grieved by unholiness, and since he is the one Spirit, disunity will always cause him grief. In fact, anything incompatible with the purity or unity of the church is incompatible with his own nature and therefore hurts him. For the Holy Spirit is a sensitive spirit. He hates sin, discord, and falsehood and shrink away from them. And therefore, if we wish to avoid hurting him, we shall shrink from them too. Every spirit-filled believer desires to bring him pleasure and not pain. Just like if you love someone, you want to, you will do your best not to hurt the person. You will be kind. You will try to reframe things because you love the person. And finally, it says here, be kind, compassionate, and forgiving. That itself can be one sermon. So that's why I say it's either six or seven because forgiving can be another part of it. Don't be unkind or bitter, Paul says, for a community to survive and be united, to reflect the true community that God designed the church to be. He said, don't be unkind or bitter, but rather kind and loving. He said, get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. This is not just characterized the world in some sense, but also the church. Anybody who has been churched long enough or been in different churches before, you know that. You know that. 
He said, get rid of all this. Instead, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. These are the sins that break fellowship. These are the sins that can destroy relationship. These are the sins that weaken the church. These are the sins that mar the testimony of the church. When an unbeliever sees Christians acting just like the rest of society, the church is blemished in their eyes and they are confirmed still further in resisting the claims of the gospel. Get rid! Put away with it. Let it be removed, Paul says. Have no more to do with it. Every kind of any trace of these blemishes is to be forsaken, Paul says. Get rid of it. Remove it. You know, there's a story about man who loves to finish his prayer. Every time he prays in a church meeting, he will always conclude his prayer with these words, Lord, clean all the cobwebs out of my life. Every time he prays, he will finish up by saying, Lord, keep and clean all the cobwebs out of my life. Of course, we all know the cobwebs were those things that ought not to have been there but had gathered during the week. And therefore he prays, the Lord, remove, clean all the cobwebs out of my life. And it got too much for one fellow in the prayer meeting. And when once he heard him pray the prayer again, he said, Lord, Lord, uh, he, the, man, the man concluded by saying, Lord, clean all the cobwebs out of my life. And then he interjected, that man who couldn't stand anymore, he interjected and said, Lord, Lord, no, no, no. Don't do it. Lord, kill the spider. <laughs> kill the spider. You know, we often like to focus on the external effects of our sins. But unresolved sin is the foothold that we have allowed the devil to occupy. Kill the spider instead of always trying to clean up the webs. Paul says, not just only get rid of all this bitterness, you put on. You put on. You become proactive in being kind and be compassionate and forgive. Forgive. Mark Twain called kindness a language that the deaf can hear and the blind can read. Kindness is a language that the deaf can hear and the blind can read. He was absolutely right. Everyone can understand the language of love. It is truly the universal language comprehended by people from every nation, by the rich and the poor, by the old and the young, by both male and female. Kindness is a universal language for it does not speak to the intellect but directly to the heart. William Barclay, a Scottish commentator, he said, More people have been brought into the church by the kindness of real Christian love than by all the theological arguments in the world. Forgive graciously. 1 Corinthians 13, the famous chapter on love, says, Love keeps no records of wrongs. Can you imagine if God keep 
the records of our wrongs? Can you imagine if your wives keep the records of all your wrongs? Or your husband keep the records of all the wrongs? Warren Wiseby, as I was reading his commentary, he said he knew of a man who actually kept a written list of the rotten things people had done to him. He also said that the man was one of the most miserable people he had ever known. Many people keep mental lists of the slights they have suffered. They never get over what happened in the past, even though it's 20 years ago, 30 years ago. They let the past continue to shape their present and their future. But true love always has a bad memory of wrongs. It's always good to be a little bit demented in this area. It's good to suffer a little bit of Alzheimer. True love has a bad memory of wrongs done to it. Love is quick to hit the delete button, the delete key. Love is always ready to say, I'm putting that in the past and I'm not going to bring it up again. And what you say, make sure you mean it. And the question is always, the last final sentence is in it, Paul says, you forgive because Christ, God, forgave you. Almost like not enough to say that, just as in Christ, God forgave you. It's not enough to say in Christ, but God emphasized that, that this God Almighty forgave you, and how can you not forgive? Can we have been so forgiven so much and not forgive of the relatively small things done against us. And we of all people should always be eager to forgive. The Christian's forgiving of others is to be as free and complete as that of God who puts away a person's sin as far as the east is from the west and holds them against no more. So Paul says, well, these are the instructions of the very practical, ethical aspect of how to be united as a church that we can reflect the true gospel to the world. Well, time is up. Let me close with this. N.T. Wright is a New Testament professor. He wrote many wonderful books. And I was reading his commentary once before in Corinthians and come to chapter 13 on the passage of love. And in his conclusion of this, his commentary, he said this, which I thought is beautiful. He says this, because 1 Corinthians 13, verse 8 to 13, is about love, hope, faith, hope, and love were continuous, as we are all, most of us, are familiar with. Especially verse 13. And now these three remain faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of this is love. And this is what he says. He said, The portion of the scripture here is that the church must be working in the present on the things that will last into God's future. Yeah? What for you work for things that only last while you're on earth? He said, You must work on things that will last into the future. Since you believe in eternity, you must, your, your sight must be that far. He said, the point is that the church must be working in the present on the things that will last into God's future. Faith, hope, and love will do this. Prophecy, tongues, and knowledge so highly prized in the Corinthian church will not survive. 
They are merely signposts to the future. When you arrive, you no longer need signposts. Love, however, is not just a signpost. It is a foretaste of the ultimate reality. Love is not merely the Christian duty. It is the Christian destiny. Because it will survive into the future. And the church should emphasize and work on those things that will survive into the future. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of this is love. Father, thank you for your word. It is direct words. And like a reflection of Mark Twain, uh, it is not those words in the scripture that we don't understand that sometimes causes our problem. The ear issue are texts that we do understand. And this text in front of us, we do understand. Even without me preaching and explaining, it is so easy to understand. So we need your Holy Spirit. We need you to use us. We need you to uh, encourage us, build us up, so that as the body of Christ, we can truly reflect what a church ought to be. Help us to learn to be kind, be compassionate. Help us to forgive, really forgive, because when we forgive, we set a prisoner free, and we discover that the prisoner is ourselves. Help us to live freely, generously, and give others the benefit of doubt and continue to forgive and draw strength from you as we know it is an incredibly difficult task because it hurts deeply, cut deeply, and we know we can't do it without your help. So Lord, as we sing this closing song, we are reminded again that it is not I, but Christ. Thank you, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.